I thought I might turn on the... <laughs> I thought about what to call this talk, and I began with a very long title. The title was, And How Exactly do, Does What We Do Here Serve to Fulfill the Commandment to Love Our Neighbors as Ourselves? And then I shortened it to uh, <coughs> Mindfulness as Prayer. And seriously, what I'd like to talk about is mindfulness as a prayer for peace, both inner and outer peace. <laughs> and the last words that I was going to say tonight, which I'll now say first in case I don't get up to the last words. because it's probably the most important thing I want to say, is that every moment of mindfulness is, I think, a prayer for peace. May I be up for this moment. May I accept it. It's the only moment that it is. It is what it is. May I be up for this moment with a balanced mind and heart so that I will be able to respond in a way that will lead to happiness, lessen suffering for myself and for all other beings. Every moment of mindfulness is a prayer for peace, and every moment of mindfulness is an act of compassion. In a moment of greeting whatever is happening without struggling with it, without fighting with it, knowing this is exactly the moment that it could, the only moment that could be now. My response can make a difference in the future, but this is the moment that I have. And every moment of mindfulness is an act of compassion on the part of, for myself and for everyone else. So I want to talk about uh, who saw the moon last night. Did you see the moon last night? I'd love to be here. That was a two-day-old moon, though. And I saw the moon, and I thought, oh, tomorrow it'll be a three-day-old moon. And a three-day-old moon is my most favorite moon. So I thought, oh, tomorrow the moon will be really good. And what's more, it'll set a little bit later, so I'll get to see it being really good a little bit longer. And I thought about, as I thought about it, I reflected about the fact that if I were a sage or a person of wisdom or a tzaddik, I would love all the moons. And I would remember every night that I would remember that every wish to have things other is an expression of discontent. This is the only moon I've got on any particular night. I like the psalm line, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be happy in it. I think to myself, this is the moon the Lord has made two days old, or three days old, or five days old, or 15 days old. This is the moon that appropriately ought to be there tonight. Lawfully ought to be there tonight. I don't need it to be any different. Not wanting things other, not needing things to be other. Sometimes we, you know, we have a preference. But to, not to feel unfulfilled, not to feel the lack if it isn't other. To rejoice in this life just as it is. I think about um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I will not feel a lack. There will be nothing lacking to me is the best translation, I think, of that phrase. There's nothing lacking to me. I think that's the most amazing mind state. Sometimes when people meditate, they have uh, all kinds of fireworks in the mind, and the mind is filled with light, or the body is filled with rapture, and those are wonderful states, and they, they're extraordinary. And, but I don't know any more wonderful state than satisfied. Actually, that's a line of a, of a gospel song that 
just now went through my mind. Search the world over. There's no place you'll, you'll you never will find. There's no nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. It's extremely hard to have a satisfied mind. The mind tinkers. Could always be a little bit more this, or a little bit more that, or a little bit less this. So last night when I thought to myself, tomorrow night it'll be good, really good. <laughs> I then realized that tomorrow I'll think, oh, it isn't three days anymore. And then I will have subtracted from my pleasure tomorrow by having wanted it other. Tomorrow it'll be like tomorrow. So I wanted to think about why did I bring up now moons and the smell of that yellow tree outside or the snake that went across the roadway just this afternoon, just before we came in here. You may not have seen. Uh, Joy spotted it first. I think there was a at least four-foot-long snake going just across the roadway, minding its business, and it came across the roadway right where we passed, where we walked, everybody stopped. It went on the other side, and it slithered up into the grass, and then it slithered away. We all stood very respectful distance from it. <laughs> and the people who had been standing there for a while said that the lizards also gave it a very wide <laughs> berth. And someone told me that today that they saw one of the does up on the hill with three fawns. Now, I've never seen that. And truth to tell, I see the, I see the doe with the twins frequently. But then I had a moment where I thought, three fawns? I wish I'd seen the three fawns. That would be better than the two fawns doe. Imagine three, you know, it could always be a little bit better. But I was thinking about all those things, the, the, the snake and, the, and, the, and the, the smell of that tree and the moon in its lawful form right now, every single day coming back in its then lawful form. And I was thinking about the human capacity to be delighted. That's an amazing piece of the human mind, that we can delight in things, be amazed. Now I look at a new baby, and however many new babies I look at, I think it has eyelashes, you know, and fingernails, teeny fingernails. How could it do that, teeny fingernails? If I think about it, I think, you know, here's this little tiny body, and it's got a pancreas and a spleen and a gallbladder, and it's all working, all its billions and billions of neurons firing to keep those all things going. It's a miracle. I think that all things new are a miracle because they're a, uh, a reminder that the creation is always recreating itself. <coughs> things are growing and dying and growing and dying and new and new. I think the new is thrilling, but also the changes to the cycles, that the changing cycles of creation, of which we are a part, are thrilling. I have a friend who signs her emails to me, stay amazed. <laughs> and every time I see that, it just lifts up my heart. I think, oh, I forgot to stay amazed. I've been plugging away at these emails <laughs> and really working at it. I forgot to stay amazed. Thank you very much, Susan. Viktor Frankl, the psychologist, of great renown for having developed logotherapy, the therapy that dealt with finding meaning in life, was himself a Holocaust survivor. Virtually all of his family was killed. He was understandably stricken with grief and depression after the hostilities were over. And in his account of his own being for a long time, overwhelmed with grief, unable to see any meaning in life, there was a, a moment as he was sitting outside that he noticed um, a twig on the ground, a piece of a branch, 
as I remember it, I couldn't look it up just today, but as I remember it was a piece of a branch with a new shoot coming out of it. And something stirred in him about things recreating and new things happening. I think we are wired to resonate with the cycles of change. We understand them somehow in our genes and they're miraculous. We know ourselves in some fundamental way to be part of this cycle of arising and passing away. Not disconnected from it in any way. Viktor Frankl said about his experience in the camps that the people who survived, he thought, were the people who took care of other people as much as they could. And um, I was talking with Sheila today about my sense of survived is I think that they survived whether or not they survived in the end and lived, that they lived as long as they lived and didn't end their lives before that. That in contact with other people, in loving, warm, compassionate relationship to other people, we keep ourselves alive. My own experience of uh, resonating to the changes that happen with life moving along in predictable cycles, moving along on the cycle of life. As I get to be older, more and more moons go by and I get to be older and older, I'm uh, impressed with how the mind and the body adapt to the changes in life. I'm uh, often surprised at the aches and pains that come as part of getting older. It doesn't feel like the body I used to have. When did that creep up? And when did I get old? You know, yesterday I was young. You know, it happens very fast. And if I think back, that whole interim between being 18 and now seems to be just gone in a moment. You know, if somebody said, where were you when you were 42 or 47 or 53? I could have figured it out, but it seems to be all in the, the same great void into which everything else goes when it becomes a memory. <laughs> and I realized that at the same time that I didn't used to have thoughts while walking down a flight of stairs, I wonder if I should be holding the handrail as I walk down this flight of stairs. I didn't used to have those thoughts, but now I do. But now I also have thoughts about, I wonder if I'll make it to be a great-grandmother. And I didn't have those thoughts before. And I think that there's something that the mind does to keep reminding ourselves that there's something quite glorious about every stage of life, from the new to the old and in between, and as long as you're alive. I thought to myself, that could be a far-out thing. I, I catch my mind in a little fantasy. I'll bring it to Spirit Rock. I'll show it to everybody. It's my great grandchild. Like I personally did it, you know. What I mean? <laughs> but I think awe and wonder and amazement and surprise are really such an integral part of the mind's equipment. I think we need them, and I need them anyway, in order to balance my ability to look out and see how much pain there is in the world and how much suffering there is attendant to that pain. I don't know how we could do it unless there was always the revival of the realization that this is the way life is in this wondrous way of recreating and recreating. It's amazing. And if we stay amazed, if I stay amazed, I can be amazed to be in any part of it. In the prayer that, uh, in one of the blessings that ushers in the Sabbath, the blessing over wine that begins the Sabbath on Friday evening, we recollect the fact of creation and we recollect the going forth out of Egypt as the two important recollections of life. And I think that really those two recollections 
the extraordinariness of creation. That here is the life, here is my life. It's like a little picture, a little part of the big movie screen. Sylvia's life is playing over here. And over here are six billion other channels of other lives playing. The great picture is life on Earth. My story is one of six billion stories in that. I pay a lot of attention to this story. I'm wired to do that. It's important to do that. And it's also important to me to be able to pay attention to this story because then I'm not stuck in my story. If I can step back and see this story, then I can see whatever the condition of my life, life itself is amazing, unfolding and unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. Creation always renewing itself. So I wanted to talk now a little bit about, uh, since I started with talking about all of the opportunities for being surprised by awe and joy and wonder at just the natural extraordinariness of being in a life, to talk a little bit about uh, the going forth from Egypt. Passover, we say, tell the story as if it's happening to you, not like it happened a long time ago. How is the story happening from you, for you? And I think to myself about the fact that on the sense of political freedom, uh, I am free. I can go about anywhere in the United States. I can go about most places in the world. Uh, many, many people who cannot, for reasons correct or incorrect, being held prisoner. So my body is free to move around. My mind is free, but sometimes it becomes held in the grip of one of my habits. It becomes enslaved, held hostage to a habit, a fear I have, a worry, a fret I have, a grudge I have, a resentment I have. I think what we're doing here is we're paying attention so that we can learn what the habits of our mind are and see which are the habits that I'd like to change and practice changing them. If I see my mind uh, on the way to a, I thought to myself once I was going to write a, a song called The Road to Resentment Doesn't Go Anyplace Good. But <laughs> if I see my mind plotting revenge about something, you know, it wouldn't be a horrible revenge that, you know, that my husband didn't uh, say exactly what I hoped he would say in response to my suggestion at breakfast. So now I'll be a little bit cool to him when he next asks. That's the extent of, you know, I'm not a very vengeful person. But even that little thought, I won't be so pleasant to him when he comes around and says, you want to have lunch or something like that. And he'll really suffer because he'll say, what's the matter with you? What did I do? And I realize that any moment that I spend hatching such a vengeance is a pain in my mind. And it's way more comfortable for me to catch my mind on the way to making that little plot and say, wait a minute, you know, he wasn't paying attention. You'll bring it up at lunch. You'll talk again. There's a much, there's a way to catch the mind on its way to a habit. Really by paying attention. It was interesting about paying attention. I was on a, I was being interviewed on a radio station in Berkeley about, oh, I don't know, a decade ago. And, uh, I was talking about the value of paying attention. I really like to demystify mindfulness. It's about paying attention. And uh, the interviewer said to me, did you notice the, the bumper stickers that are going around in Berkeley? They all, a lot of people have bumper stickers saying, if you're not depressed, you're not paying attention. <laughs> so I want to say the opposite, that if you're paying attention, you can see what to do. You see what's wrong, what needs to be addressed, and you can know what to do. This is a good time. I want to see if I can tell this briefly. This is one of my favorite stories. I haven't told it in a while. But about teaching about paying attention to sixth graders. Um, 
I can tell how long ago the story is because the sixth grader has now finished his second year at university. But anyway, <laughs> I was a guest at the sixth grade class in Marin County, sixth graders who had studied about India and they'd read about meditation and they wanted to know what it was about. And Colin was in that class and I'm his grandmother, so I went. And I was, I was invited to talk about mindfulness, meditation, the Buddha. So I really started out with paying attention. It's about paying attention. And I started out by trying to make clear what the benefits of paying attention would be to sixth graders. You, you won't miss what the teacher is saying. You won't forget to write down the homework. Even if people are talking around you, you'll be able to get your work done, be able to concentrate. Paying attention is good for you. Paying, paying, paying. So, uh, oh, I asked, I remember, I said, if you pay attention, you can really do the right thing. You, you, it, it makes you wise. Uh, who here knows what wise means? Somebody said, um, um, my, my grandfather was not wise. He knew that cigarettes weren't good for him, and he smoked anyway. And then somebody else said about unwise and wise. So I said, I figured, all right, I'm on the right path. And I continue on, and then... Uh, Somebody uh, raised their hand and said, uh, we saw, we read in our textbook, in our book on um, meditation, that some people, if they meditate, they can read your mind and they can know what was in the past and what's going to be in the future. Is that true? So I said, well, some people that meditate very hard, it seems to be that if their mind gets very steady, for some people they can actually tell the past and tell the future. But the main thing about mindfulness is, is about paying attention. So I bring it back. <laughs> so I carry on with the paying attention. Somebody else said, we saw in our book pictures of people that when they meditated, they could stick pins through their arms <laughs> and they could walk on hot coals. Is that true? <laughs> so I said, well, some people, that they meditate very hard that they, they can be so concentrated that they don't feel pain in the same way that other people do. And they can, in fact, walk on hot coals. But mindfulness is about <laughs> paying attention. And carry on a little bit more. And some boy raises his hand and he said, um, it also said that some people... They could meditate so much, so hard that they could actually walk through walls. Is that true? <laughs> so I said, well, actually, I knew a woman once. I met her, actually, who was a teacher of my teacher. And uh, she was a Bengali woman. Uh, she, was a, uh, she, was, she was a Bengali woman. She lived in India. She lived in Calcutta. She spoke Bengali. Uh, so I never spoke to her directly, but uh, I did meet her. And my teacher said that her meditation power was so intense that she could walk through walls. They said, uh, did you see her do it? <laughs> I said, no, I didn't see her do it, but my teacher said that she could do it, so I believed them. I did, you know, and I never thought to ask what he next asked. He said, how did she do it? So I see everybody is waiting, 26 people are waiting to tell them. So I said, well, what my teachers said, what people say is that she meditated so hard that all of her molecules dispersed so they could pass right through the wall, and then they came back together on the other side of the wall and recoalesced. I see 26 people are nodding like that's the most plausible thing. <laughs> And so I continued on with what I was teaching, and we had a really lovely morning together. And we did meditations on the breath, we did meditations on walking, did a little movement meditation. A great morning. So I went home, and three days later, um, I got a big packet in the mail, as one does when one teaches a grade school class, of everybody writing a thank you note, all 20, 26 thank you notes. 25, dear Sylvia, one dear grandma. And they all said, thank you very much. I enjoyed what you said about the Buddha. I enjoyed what you said about meditation. I, I, I liked uh, 
the, I liked uh, doing the yoga postures together. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. One, one letter said, Dear uh, Sylvia, all of those, thank you very much for coming to the class and for all that you said. And I'm still thinking about that woman who walked through walls. And what I'm wondering is if, in the middle of walking through a wall, she lost her concentration, <laughs> would she get stuck in the wall forever? <laughs> That's about the best meditation story I know. Because <laughs> the, the, the truth is that I get stuck in walls all the time. <laughs> Not those kind of walls. I get stuck in walls of resentment and walls of revenge and walls of fixed views and walls of prejudice and walls of bias and all the walls that keep me from absolutely connecting with the whole rest of everyone I know and everyone that I don't know. Those walls are there because of the habits of my own mind that construct the walls and keep me a prisoner, held prisoner, in Mitzrayim, and for those of you who don't know, that that word also means a tight place. It's the name of the country, a narrow place. It's the name of the country of Egypt, but it's also, its meaning is a narrow place. My mind becomes a narrow place, and I can't see out of it, and I can't move. And I get stuck in walls that are, that are constructed by the habits of my own mind, fixed views that won't budge, this is good, this is not good, it has to be this way, it has to be the other way. It's humbling to see the habits of my mind. Every time I see them, I, I like to think, I think it's true that after these years, decades of practice, that my habits hold me hostage less long than they did. I think they're better, my habits. But I have habits still that I'm working on. Sometimes when people are ready to leave a retreat, as you all are getting ready to leave tomorrow, they begin to feel, because they've spent this week really confronting their own habits and looking around at other people, they begin to feel a little bit hesitant about going out in the outside world. Joy asked me just before we started, she said, are you going to talk about how to take this out with us into the outside world? And I said, yes, tonight and tomorrow morning as well. But um, people feel like they've disencumbered themselves of their normal armoring, and they feel themselves and know themselves more clearly. They look at other people and they intuit that other people, just as they are walking around with their catalog of stories that plague the mind and hold it hostage, their catalog of aches and pains in the body that are their heritage for whatever reason. People report that they become more tolerant in their mind during this week, that they begin not to be so reactive. Somebody slams the door, somebody drops a book, somebody drops a dish in the dining room. We startle less. Actually, that's actually true. That as the mind concentrates, we're less startleable. I think we live with our nerves more or less on edge in the normal lives that we live. So we come here, and people sometimes say, I'm afraid to go out in the world. I feel too vulnerable to go out into the world. And I think, and I, I want to say this with, with all respect for that it is hard to go back in the world that's noisier and busier than here. But I, I, I'd like to think of about another phrase rather than vulnerable, because I think it would be great if the whole world became vulnerable, too vulnerable. I think if we became too vulnerable, too much in touch with how much pain and difficulty we each of us have, just with the normal stuff of our lives, and intuit how other people must have it as well, how much we would rededicate ourselves to harmonious relationships with everybody. We'd lower our voices like we do in a hospital, realize that everyone is in trouble. 
Let's not make it worse with discord. Haven't got a moment to lose, really, to forgive the grudges I'm carrying in my mind, the little list of people who said something not nice about me three years ago that I always remember when I see them, that I don't need that stuff in my mind. I really feel that my best um, protection in this difficult world is my own benevolent heart, and I need as much of it available as I can have, and not any of it mortgaged to old grudges and resentments. Somebody once said to me at a retreat, he said, well, you know, Sylvia, um, forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. I said, that's great, Tom. That's a wonderful line. That summarizes the whole thing. We have in some way to forgive people, to forgive life, to forgive circumstances. It's just like it is. I said, that's a wonderful line, Tom. Can I use that? Forgiveness is the price you have to pay for freedom. He said, you can, but only if you always say that Tom said it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's easily 20 years, and I have never said it without saying Tom said it. I don't know where Tom is now, but Tom said it. You know, I think that we're so um, bewildered out in the world. I actually thought about that word today, and I thought about the Israelites got out from Egypt, but they were in the wilderness for a long time. And how easy it is to wander aimlessly in the wilderness. And I thought about wilderness and bewildered. Where am I? What should I do? What's really going on? How will I get to where I want to be, to the real liberation, the real freedom? I was thinking about the fact Sheila quoted the line from Emerson yesterday about if the stars only came out once in a thousand years, we wouldn't miss them, we'd pay attention. I think the stars are there, as, as, as she said, as Emerson said, and so we get used to it and we don't pay attention. All the wonderment is there and we don't pay so much attention. I think that for whatever reason that we are so bewildered and so overcome with outer stuff and with inner stuff, that we don't pay a, a lot of attention to the omnipresence of pain in the world. I think if we did, we'd be stopped in our tracks the same way as if we s stopped and looked at the stars and realized what's up there. If we stopped in our tracks, awestruck by the pain, and committed to making a difference about it. There was a newspaper, um, that I, front page that I carried around with me all oh, three or four or five years ago now. Can't remember exactly when it was. Uh, it was the front page of a Sunday New York Times. And it was the whole top of the fold, a color photograph of a marine medic sitting in the middle of a battlefield in Iraq or Afghanistan, I'm not sure sitting in a battlefield, one of those two places, in the middle of a battlefield, sitting cross-legged on the, fl on the ground and cradling a child in his arms. Child, it says in the caption, is a two-year-old child. And it says, this is Marine Medic, so-and-so, so-and-so from Texas. It's holding a child whose mother has just been killed in the crossfire. And I read that and I was so shaken by the idea that, by the, by the awareness that it doesn't matter which side of the crossfire fired that bullet, that child's mother is dead forever, no matter whose side. And in that same picture, in the back, it was surreal, in the back, the war is continuing. And you see the pictures of combat people crouched as they do with weapons, crossing on the back of the screen. It's this marine medic has sat down in the middle of a battle, and the, the battle is going past him. People are continuing, and he sat down in the middle of it. I looked at that picture, and I thought, right there on the whole front of the New York Times, 
And I thought, why doesn't the whole world look at this and stop and sit down or stand up and say, wait a minute, there's something terrible about this. What's going on? Can't be winners or losers in a, in a, in a, in a war. Everyone is a loser in a war. Everyone. I read recently in the newspaper that this Marine medic, who I'm very sorry to say I've forgotten his name at this moment, took his own life a couple of years ago, finished his tour of duty, and he came home, and he recently took his own life. I think we could look at a picture like that, of that and say, what can I do if we stopped? There was a picture on the front of the paper also in the last couple of years that I cut out of uh, rescued miners after a mine disaster in Pennsylvania. And uh, it showed um, one of the miners, they'd all been rescued after a harrowing several days underground, showed this particular miner with his loved ones around them and there were his arms around them and everybody smiling and tearful. And you look at the picture, and I carried it around and showed it wherever I was teaching. And I said, what's in this picture? And I said, if you look at this picture, you see people who are happy because they've been reunited and nobody died. But if you really, really look at this picture, you look with really clear vision. I like very much that the French translation of uh, mindfulness is not, which we translate in English, as clear seeing is vision profonde, that if we look with vision profonde, we see really, how could this happen? Why are people going a mile under the ground, jeopardizing their health, jeopardizing their lives, getting coal dust in their lungs, mining coal that will pollute the atmosphere and despoil the earth? Why is this happening? Why has everyone not stood up and say, we can't do this anymore at all? We have to figure out another way. Let's harness the wind. Let's do something. Let's not do this. Why hasn't everyone looked and stopped and said, let's do something else? So I wanted to share a poem with you about what would happen if everyone looked and stopped. Where is Sylvia? Silvia Cheskes. It's a poem by Pablo Neruda. And uh, of course, it's written in Spanish. I have the translation. And I thought it would be lovely for you to hear Silvia read it to you first. callarse. Ahora contaremos doce y nos quedamos todos quietos. Por una vez sobre la tierra no hablemos en ningún idioma. Por un segundo detengámonos, no movamos tanto los brazos. Sería un minuto fragante, sin prisa, sin locomotoras. Todos estaríamos juntos en una inquietud instantánea. Los pescadores del mar frío no harían daño a las ballenas y el trabajador de la sal miraría sus manos rotas. Los que preparan guerras verdes, guerras de gas, guerras de fuego, victorias sin sobrevivientes, se pondrían un traje puro y andarían con sus hermanos por la sombra, sin hacer nada. No se confunda lo que quiero con la inacción definitiva. La vida es solo lo que se hace. No quiero nada con la muerte. Si no pudimos ser unánimes moviendo tantos nuestras vidas, tal vez no hacer nada una vez, Tal vez un gran silencio puede interrumpir esta tristeza, este no entendernos jamás y amenazarnos con la muerte. Tal vez la tierra nos enseñe cuando todo parece muerto y luego todo estaba vivo. Ahora contaré hasta doce y tú te callas y me voy. Keeping quiet. And now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still, 
this one time upon the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for one second and not move our arms so much. It would be a delicious moment without hurry, without locomotives. All of us would be together in a sudden uneasiness. The fishermen in the cold sea would do no harm to the whales, and the peasant gathering salt would look at his torn hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars of gas, wars of fire, victories without survivors, would put on clean clothing and would walk alongside their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want shouldn't be confused with final inactivity. Life is what Life alone is what matters. I want nothing to do with death. If we weren't unanimous about keeping our lives in so much motion, if we could do nothing for once, perhaps a great silence would interrupt this sadness, this never understanding ourselves and threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth is teaching us when everything seems to be dead and then everything is alive. Now I will count to 12, and you will keep quiet, and I'll go. I realize that I cannot stop wars in the world. I can't do much further than stop the wars in myself and live in the world and manifest that so that maybe it spreads around me and around and around and around. My ability to change the habits of my mind is what gives me faith that human beings could do this. If I couldn't do it, if I cannot do it for myself, I cannot imagine that the world will save itself. If I can address whatever is blocking my heart, then I think other people can do it. That gives me a lot of courage. I think I thought of it this afternoon when we had the line about, I cannot finish the job but neither can I not do it, neither can I desist from it. Every time I restore clarity in my own mind, I've escaped from Egypt. Every time I forgive someone for being really who they are, they can't be other. I don't even have to like them. I just have to not have ill will to them. I want no enmity in my heart. Every time I do that, I have gone out from Egypt. If I have enmity in my mind, I can't be at peace. I have to be always on the lookout for those enemies. And I have to keep telling myself the story of why they're my enemies. If I tell myself the truth about what's happening in my life, I I could be sad, but I won't be suffering. I could face what's happening without the extra pain of agonizing about it. If I were clear enough, I'd know that what's happening is the only thing that could be happening. It's a lawful cosmos. There are causes and conditions to things. I think about the fact that um, karma really means that it's a lawful cosmos that there are causes and effects of things, sometimes misrepresented as punishment or reward. I don't think that's what it means at all, really. I think it means that there are causes and conditions for everything. I think um, the habit of Jews, the custom, to make the blessing, praise God, the true judge, Diane Emmet, when you hear uh, somebody tells you some bad news. I don't think 
I, I, I never think that it has anything to do with the fact that God made the bad news happen. Or I think that it's a way of saying to myself or providing another person the realization that even in this moment of distress or bereavement or trauma, that we can remember that things happen in a lawful way in this cosmos. The true judge, I think, means it's a lawful world. There are causes and conditions. Things happen because other things happen. On the street going down to my house a few weeks ago, I came back from an errand. And I drove out of my car, came back a little bit later from an errand, and a huge branch off an old oak tree had fallen down and blocked the road. And uh, someone was just arriving with backing up his truck but that had just been on the other side of it and um, getting out a winch and trying to pull the, this huge, huge, enormous branch out of the road so people could pass. And I realized that I'd driven out, driven out that road a few minutes before on an errand. People are walking on that road all the time and running. I bicycle down that road. People are walking their dogs on that road. When that branch fell down, it fell down on no one. But it could have fallen on somebody. It would have fallen a few minutes before or a few minutes after. Things happen for causes and conditions. That oak has stood there 200 years, and that was the moment that it fell down. And if someone had been there, it would be because of causes and conditions. No one ever deserves anything. Things happen just because of causes and conditions. I think saying Dayan Emet to somebody means don't lose heart. This is the causes and conditions. This is how life happens. A friend of mine um, died a few years ago of uh, pancreas cancer, and she talked about her own pain and her own suffering. And she said, when I think to myself, why is this happening to me? You know, I'm young. I, I was vital. I was just enjoying myself and having a good life. Why me? Why me? She said, when I think that, I, my mind really suffers. She said, and I think that for a while. And then all of a sudden, I'll think to myself, why not me? People have pancreas cancer. It's one of the things that happened to people. Happened to me. It doesn't mean that she was any happier about having the cancer and about dying, which he did not so long after. It meant, she said to me, she said, when I think, why me, why me, that I suffer. And then when I think, why not me? This is one of the things that happened to people. I'm very sad and I have a lot of pain, but I don't suffer. This is what's happening. Everything happens to everybody. Nyanapanaka. Nyanapanaka was the monk name of uh, a German Jew born early in the 20th century. He died in the 1990s, almost 100 years old. He was a German Jew. He grew up in Germany. He uh, went to university, and then he went to Sri Lanka to study Buddhism. And he ordained as a monk, and uh, he became a Tera, which is T-H-E-R-A, which is an elder monk, it's a venerable term, and then a Mahatera, which is a really, really venerable monk. <laughs> and he was the uh, editor of the Buddhist Publication Society in uh, Sri Lanka. And he wrote really beautiful things. Uh, I, I want to read you a little piece from something that he wrote. But he, sp he spoke about uh, mindfulness and described mindfulness and one of the terms he used for mindfulness is he said, mindfulness is non-coercive. It doesn't insist that things be different any moment in the mind. Just what's there is there. You could do things, certainly. It's always clear that mindfulness is aware of what's happening inside and outside in this moment with what's called in the text clear comprehension of purpose given what's happening, what should I do now? And strength to do it as well. So, you know, sometimes people might imagine it means just being there. It doesn't mean just being there. 
It means being there and then responding in a way that continues, in a way that uh, leads to contentment or happiness, in a way that doesn't create suffering, in a way that's motivated by the desire not to add suffering to an already painful world. Our lives are difficult just as they are, without wars and without uh, uh, terrible illnesses, even in the, it, it, without wars, without catastrophes, without branches falling on us, if our health holds up as long as our natural bodies, they, they end at some point. Our natural lives are, are time-bound, and we are all here for a certain amount of time. And people will lament our passing, whatever age we are, whatever. There's a woman in the synagogue I belong to who's 107, and people are beginning to worry that she's failing a little bit. <laughs> but if she makes it another month, we'll celebrate her 108th birthday in August. So, and she thinks and remembers. And Nyanapanika, I, I, I'm going to read you something from Nyanapanika. But I, I wanted also, in between that, to tell you, I've been reading a lot of Lynn Jensen recently. Lynn Jensen is a Zen teacher. Uh, he's, a Zen, he's the leader of the Zen community in Chico, California. And he wrote an extraordinary book of essays about his growing up and about teaching Zen called Bad Dog. He had very, very difficult, he had a very, very difficult childhood in the sense that his living conditions were very harsh, his family was poor, they were turkey farmers in Orange County. His parents had extremely harsh discipline. The book starts with a beating that he received from his father, who ritually beat him and his brother with strapping. But really, it was hard to read. I wanted to pass over the pages. But he, and he talks about the difficulties of. Um, really the, that he encountered in growing up. But early on in the book, he says something. He starts to tell his parents' background. My father came from, I think, Norway, somewhere in Scandinavia. He came as a young man, didn't speak English. He had a very harsh kind of a way getting started. He had every kind of obstacle. His mother was literally a foundling given away to another family to raise. And he said uh, in some, he says in some very simple line, he said, uh, when my parents met and married, they had no role models at all to tell them about how to raise children. They hadn't ever of them led, lived at all in a functional household. And then he goes on. And it's just like you can see how Lynn Jensen is saying, it was terrible, but they couldn't have been otherwise. And just like that, doesn't gloss it over. He tells it exactly the way it is. And then in one sentence, he said, they had no role models, and he continues. And the book ends with him really taking physical, bodily care of the most intimate kind of his aging 94-year-old father when he is in his 60s, as the father is dying. But he says in the end, what redeems human life is kindness, the simple offering of loving consideration for others. And kindness is learned most intimately in times of suffering. It's a kindness, a love that doesn't depend on the loved ones being deserving, and a love that seeks nothing for itself. I really have enjoyed this tremendously, the, the, the sense that if we look at our lives and the things that happen to us with clarity, that forgiveness is, is actually Secondary, forgiveness just happens. It, 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 there doesn't have to be anyone who forgives anyone else. Everything else just makes sense. They couldn't be otherwise. And we are converted to kindness. I'm reading a book called That Bird Has My Wings by Jarvis J. Masters. It's about to be published. Jarvis J. Masters is uh, in San Quentin and will be in the rest of his for the rest of his life. He... Uh, um, 
he had the most impossible childhood that I could imagine. To read through the first ten pages of growing up in a family with two parents who were dealing crack cocaine and addicted to it and took no care whatsoever of their four babies and how the, the health department found them and put them in, in foster homes. How his life was, he got into a life of uh, delinquency. He was arrested for thefts. He was implicated in a murder of a prison guard that he was actually later shown to have not participated in. But he's spending his life in prison. And at some point, um, a, a woman who's an, a Buddhist practitioner and um, a peace activist, Melanie, Melody, Melody Irma Child Chafis, began to, came to came to um, met him, taught him to meditate. Well, it doesn't matter that I don't find this. Told taught him to meditate. He became dedicated to meditation, to transformation, to uh, really allowing his mind to bring up to him all of the story of his life. He tells that this autobiography is what he wrote with uh, the inside of a pen because in, uh, in, in death row where he is, he can't have a real pen. It's a sharp implement. So practically writing with a crayon to write his story bring up his whole life and uh, come really to terms with it by recognizing that nobody could do anything different in his life, that the anger that had driven his life up to the time that he, up to and including his early years in prison, was what really kept him in, enslaved. That bird has my wings is his recognition that he won't be out of that prison in this lifetime. But his mind and his heart can be out of that prison. He is not held prisoner by his background. What he's done is he's dedicated himself to hospital chaplaincy. And uh, he uh, counsels people who are dying in the prison and sits with them. That's what he does. I read that and I am humbled when I think of the mountains that people climb to come out from slavery and to free themselves and how you can be free under any condition. And the freedom is freedom to love because it's good for the lover as much as anyone else, free from enmity. So this is Nyanapanaka. talking about what real love is. Love that doesn't select or exclude, knowing well that to do so means to create love's own contrasts, the dislike, aversion, and hatred. Love embracing all things, small and great, far and near, be it on earth, in the water, or in the air. Love embracing impartially all sentient beings and not only those who are useful, pleasing, or amusing to us. Love embracing all beings, be they noble-minded or low-minded, good or evil. The noble and the good are embraced because love is flowing to them spontaneously. The low-minded and evil-minded are included because those are the ones who are most in need of love. In many of them, the seed of goodness may have died merely because warmth was lacking for its growth, because it perished from cold in a loveless world. Love that lies like a soft but firm hand on ailing beings, ever, ever unchanged in its sympathy, without wavering, unconcerned with any response it meets. The highest man what is the highest manifestation of that love representing to the world that there is an end to suffering 
Maybe what I want to say last, really, I'm hesitating to have a last word after Nyanapanaka, but um, I just looked up and was thinking we would all go out those doorways, and I remembered that I wanted to say that I sometimes think about the, the, the mitzvot, the, the list of commandments that are part of the framework of the Jewish life. And sometimes I think to myself, there are all these commandments that regulate all the actions of life. And uh, in, a, in a most sincere way, I think, we could have only one commandment. And this could be the one commandment religion. And the commandment would be the commandment to affix a mezuzah to the doorposts of your house. It is one of the commandments. And a mezuzah, you may have seen on, some, on a doorpost of a Jewish home, uh, is a, a holder for a piece of paper in it that will have written on it, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your all your soul, with all your might. And it goes on to say these words which I command you this day, and keep them on your heart, and keep them on the doorposts of your house. And I think to myself that I, I like to think about the commandment to love as the commandment to love all beings, all creation, everything, everything with all my heart and soul and might. And so my one commandment in religion would be, people have the habit when there is a mezuzah on the door to touch it and kiss it as they're going in or coming out of their house. So I would like to just uh, embellish that commandment, not just the touching and the kissing and going out or coming in, but I'd like to make the extra rule that you can't do that touch and kiss unless there's no one in your heart that you've put out. There's no one that's put out of your heart to have really a, be able to love with all your heart and soul and might. And if you're about to go out the door and you realize that there is some bitterness in your heart, to stay there until you work it out. <laughs> and then you can kiss and go. And the same when you come back. And I think to myself, all the people that are late for their dentist, or late for school, or they come home and they're standing in the rain, they can't go in. But I think it would be a great commandment. Because there's really no way that we can love our neighbor as ourself unless we can all the neighbors in the whole world, including those that don't please us and those that frighten us. There is no way that we can effectively address them unless we can love with all our heart and soul and might. So thank you. And let's sit one minute. In a minute, um, Jeff needs to tell you an announcement. I want to uh, tell you that we'll we'll uh, walk for um, we'll walk for a half hour, so we'll be back here at nine twenty. We'll sit shorter, so really, I encourage you to come back and sit for fifteen or twenty minutes because we're in a lot of input this afternoon and evening. I really, really want to encourage you to not visit tonight. We really, really have come to the end of this time with a really firm container of silence to rest in. And I'd like it to be through the evening and through your sleep and through the getting up and through the sitting here 
and up to and including the breakfast because it's otherwise too noisy in the dining room and it would just be not a good place to visit. But after you finish your breakfast, feel free to go out and visit with anybody you want to, talk to anybody, do any kind of talking and visiting. We don't come back in here until 9.30. So unless you're doing a job, you have time to visit, take a walk, take a hike meet the people that you've been looking at and thinking about all week <laughs> that you want to meet and look at. And then we'll be back at 9.30. But really, really keep the container for tonight. Thank you very much. And Jeff needs to tell you something. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.